Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 177, The Henchmen of Khrushchev and Stalin, Part 2. Last time, we covered Lavrenti Beria, Nikolai Bolganin, Lazar Kaganovich, and Georgi Malenkov. Today, we're going to talk about Anastas Mikoyan, Vyacheslav Molotov, Mikhail Suzlov, Clement Voroshilov, and Andrei Zhidanov. Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan was the only one of the henchmen of Stalin and Khrushchev to pretty much last without being ousted or purged from 1915 when he joined the Bolshevik party until his retirement in 1965 after Leonid Brezhnev came to power. Mikoyan was born to Armenian parents on November 13, 1895, in the village of Sanahin. He was educated at the Narcissian School in Tiflis, Georgia, and then in a seminary. But the religious life was not the one he felt comfortable in. He became an avowed atheist because of the school. As he put it, quote, I had a very clear feeling that I didn't believe in God, and that I had, in fact, received a certificate in materialistic uncertainty. The more I studied religious subjects, the less I believe in God. After joining the Bolshevik party, he became a leader in the Caucasus. He went to Baku, where he became the co-editor of the Social Democrat and later Izvestia Bakinskoga Sovieta. During the Russian Civil War, he was a commissar in the Red Army, where he saved the life of Sergo Orzhenokidze. It was as a commissar that he would mysteriously escape execution as one of the Baku 26. The Baku 26 were all commissars that were captured by the Trans-Caspian government, with Mikhail Mikoyan somehow being the only one not to be killed. Early on, Anastas was a strong supporter of Joseph Stalin. He was appointed People's Commissar for External and Internal Trade in 1926, where he performed admirably. Interestingly, after he was made a member of the Politburo, he was one of the first Soviet leaders to go to the United States in 1935, where he learned a great deal about the food industry, in particular the manufacture of canned goods. While there, he also met with Henry Ford and went to Macy's in New York City. When he returned to the Soviet Union, he introduced his countrymen to things like cornflakes, hamburgers, ice cream, popcorn, tomato juice, grapefruits, and corn on the cob. He was so enamored of ice cream that he controlled its production to such a point that Stalin was to have said that, quote, you, Anastas, care more about ice cream than about communism. Mikoyan's role in the Great Purge of the 1930s was a mixed bag. It is said that he interceded for more people than any other henchman, and according to Simon Seabag Montefior, he, quote, enjoyed the reputation of one of the more decent leaders. He certainly helped the victims later and worked hard to undo Stalin's rule after the leader's death. Still, he signed the death warrants for thousands, including Grigory Zinoviev and Lev Kamenev. He also signed off on the Katyn Forest Massacre as well. During World War II, Mikoyan was a full member of the State Defense Committee, the GKO. His job was to keep the supplies going to the Red Army, 
which he did quite well. After the war, he began to fall out of favor with Stalin, and was even accused once of plotting Stalin's death with Molotov and others. If not for the good timing of the leader's death, he probably would have been executed in 1953 or 54. With Khrushchev in power and the de-Stalinization program running at full steam, Mikoyan was appointed as the head of the Commission on Rehabilitation. Not only that, but it was Anastas who spoke before Khrushchev condemning Stalin at the 20th Party Congress. He further supported Nikita against the anti-party group led by Molotov, Kaganovich, and Malenkov. But his support also led him into conflict with the new boss. He went to Hungary with Mikhail Suzlov in 1956 to oversee the turmoil going on and was firmly against military intervention, so much so that when the Soviet invasion did occur, he offered his resignation. Mikoyan was also frequently at odds with Khrushchev over foreign policy matters, like when Nikita walked out of the 1960 Paris summit brought on by the U-2 crisis. He was also very much against the idea of putting missiles in Cuba, which precipitated the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Mikoyan was sent to the island to negotiate with Castro, who was furious that the Soviets would think of removing the weapons. While there, he was told that his wife, Ashken, had died, but he decided that his job in Cuba was more important than his attendance at her funeral. When Khrushchev was ousted in 1964 in the coup led by Leonid Brezhnev and Alexei Kosygin, Mikoyan was said to have sat on both sides of the fence. Some say he was involved in the plot. Others say he was the only one to side with Nikita. Whichever side you take on this one, his power, though, was greatly diminished. But it's likely that he would have been retired anyway, as he was getting older and was in somewhat failing health. Mikoyan died on October 21, 1978, at the age of 82, of natural causes. His legacy is truly a mixed one. Some view him as an honest and caring communist. Others, like Hayek de Moyan, say he, quote, symbolizes evil, mass murders, and an atmosphere of fear. Politically, this is the quote that I really thought was best when it came to summing up his career. Quote, the rascal was able to walk through Red Square on a rainy day without an umbrella, without getting wet. He could dodge raindrops. To have survived through Stalin and those times and to make it even through Khrushchev and into the Brezhnev era, Dodging raindrops was a good thing. Well, next up is probably the best known of the henchmen, Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Molotov. His original last name was Skryabin, but as opposed to the common myth, he was no relation to the composer Alexander Skryabin. I'm only going to lightly cover him as eventually he will have his own podcast episode. A shy and quiet Russian revolutionary, he became radicalized in 1906, was initially arrested in 1909, and sent into exile for two years in Vologda. In 1911, he met Joseph Stalin while they worked together on the Bolshevik newspaper Pravda. Molotov was arrested again in 1915, this time being sent to Irkutsk in Siberia. 
He was able to escape and make it back to St. Petersburg the following year. After the revolution, he moved up the ranks very quickly. By 1921, he was the Central Committee Secretary, the following year a candidate member of the Politburo, and the following year after that, a full member. Molotov, because of his unwavering support of Stalin, was made the chairman of the Council of People's Commissars in 1930, which was kind of like the ceremonial head of the Soviet government. During the war, he was made first deputy under Stalin until 1957. He is best known to the outside world for negotiating the famous non-aggression treaty between Nazi Germany and the USSR in 1939, known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. As with Mikoyan, after the war, Molotov began to fall out of favor with Stalin, with hints that he was to be purged shortly. After Stalin's death, he came back to prominence, only to come crashing down as one of the lead members of the coup attempt to oust Khrushchev, known as the Anti-Party Group. Molotov died in 1986 at the ripe old age of 96, just a few years before the collapse of the USSR he so loyally served. More on him in the future. Mikhail Andreevich Suzlov is one of the least talked about Soviet henchmen in the West. He's viewed as a minor player by many, so much so that in the book On Stalin's Team, The Years of Living Dangerously in Soviet Politics by Sheila Fitzpatrick, he is mentioned only once. But my view of him is similar to many insiders that he was one of the most hardline Bolshevik communists of all. Suzlov was actually the chief ideologue of the party until his death in 1982. Born in Russia in 1902, his early days with the Bolsheviks didn't start until 1921. And it wasn't until 1931 that he left his position as a teacher to go into politics full-time. Suzlov benefited from Stalin's purges moving up the ranks due to the vacuum left by all the murdered communists ahead of him. During the war, he served admirably, being a leader of the guerrilla movement against the Nazis in Stavropol Krai, where he was made first secretary. Because of his service, he was made a member of the Org Bureau in 1946 and appointed to the Presidium in 1950. Suzlov lost much of his influence and prestige after Stalin's death, and Khrushchev's rise as he was a staunch Stalinist and totally against the revisionism of the new head of the party. When Brezhnev came to power, Suzlov followed. He was a major proponent of the collective leadership idea and became one of the natural successors to Brezhnev until his untimely death. Suzlov, as I mentioned, was remembered for being the most hardline of the Soviet Union being against any types of reform and fervently against the idea of detente with the West. Some viewed Suzlov as sort of the Pope of Bolshevism and Communism. Clement Efremovich Voroshilov was one of the most famous of the marshals of the Great Patriotic War, as well as commander of the Red Army during the Russian Civil War. His life as a henchman of Stalin's is an interesting one, so as with Molotov, he's likely to get a podcast episode of his own in the future. Born in 1881 in Ukraine to Russian parents, he was one of the oldest henchmen, only three years the junior to Stalin. He joined the Bolshevik party early on in 1903. 
What made him a favorite of Stalin was his service with him during the civil war in Tsaritsyn. His devotion to his leader was unwavering despite numerous times when Stalin would berate him for incompetence. Voroshilov was to serve as defense minister from 1929, or excuse me, 1925, until 1940, and him his role was to lead the disastrous purge against many of the best military minds of the Soviet Union. Among the henchmen, his signature appears more often on execution lists, except for Molotov, Stalin, and Kaganovich. Not only that, but he would write personal letters to exiled military men and diplomats, guaranteeing their safe return to the USSR, only to have them arrested and then executed upon their arrival. It's also been suggested by Trotsky that Voroshilov had his predecessor, Mikhail Frunz, murdered by orders of Stalin on an operating table for a minor stomach surgery through the overuse of chloroform. Clement Voroshilov was by all accounts an incompetent military leader. He was at the head of the Soviet army that got beat up by Finland early on in the Winter War from November 1939 to January 1940. The Soviet army suffered from between about 125 to over 180,000 casualties as a result of his inability to lead. Another debacle that he was in charge of was the defense of Leningrad, although while he showed personal valor. He botched it up, causing a total encirclement by the Nazis and his ouster and replacement by Marshal Georgi Zhukov in September of 1941. One of the most famous incidents involving Voroshilov was at the 1943 Tehran conference with Churchill, FDR, and Stalin in attendance. The British Prime Minister presented the sword of Stalingrad to the Soviet leader, but when Voroshilov took it, he let the sword drop out of his hands, out of the scabbard, and onto his toes. After Stalin's death, he helped overthrow Beria and initially supported Khrushchev, but he was moved out of power about the time that Malenkov, Molotov, and Kaganovich were. Leonid Brezhnev brought him back in 1966 in a mostly ceremonial position until his death in 1969 at the age of 88. Lastly, we come to Andrei Zhidanov, the man that was thought to be the next in line after Stalin, but who died five years before the Soviet leader in 1948. Born in 1896 as the son of a school inspector, he joined the Bolshevik party in 1915 while still a student. Zhdanov became a party secretary in Nizhny Novgorod from 1922 to 1934, before heading to the Leningrad party organization from 34 to 44. He was to lead the resistance during the siege of Leningrad, but many think it was this struggle that led to his ill health in the years to come. Khrushchev, though, in his autobiography, felt that it was Zhidanov's total alcoholism that was to blame. And looking at the information that I've read, I'm going to go with Khrushchev on this one. After the war, Andrei was to lead the cultural policy as set forth by Stalin. He came up with what is known as the Zhidanov Doctrine, which states, quote, The only conflict that is possible in Soviet culture is the conflict between good and best. He would decide what was good and what wasn't. So there was a great deal of uh, censorship and purges against writers like Anna Akhmatova, Mikhail Zoshchenko, 
and famous musicians like Dmitry Shostakovich and Sergei Prokofiev. In June of 1948, though, Zhdanov was sent by Stalin to the Common Forum meeting in Bucharest to condemn Yugoslavia and its leader, Marshal Tito, but Andrei decided he's going to go soft on his fellow communist, much to the ire of Stalin. He was ousted from many of his posts, but in all likelihood, Zhdanov was on his way out due to his heavy drinking. Stalin would yell at him constantly to tone down his alcoholism, which is kind of ironic because it was because of the Soviet leader that many of his henchmen would become alcoholics. Andrei Zhdanov died on August 31, 1948, at the age of 52. His children, though, were to become somewhat famous as his son Yuri was briefly married to Stalin's daughter Svetlana from 1948 until 53. And his daughter Ekaterina was to become the rector of Rostov University. Next time, we're going to take another look at the leadership of the first Soviet head of state, Vladimir Lenin, and I'm going to try to throw a curveball into that one as well to look at things of what if Lenin hadn't died so early, if he had lived a little longer, and that bullet by his assassin, Fanny Kapler, would have missed. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and now, as always, das vidanya i spasibo bolshoya.